this story is not told. All of our understanding and all of the research, popular and more scholarly, on high explosives really starts in Wilmington. The California firms at best are, are alluded to. From the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, this is Stories from the Stacks. I'm Ben Spohn. And I'm Amherst Williams. Each episode, we sit down with one of our visiting researchers and talk to them about what they're finding in our collections. Hey, my name's Seth Lunine, and I'm from the University of California at Berkeley. I teach in the Geography Department. And uh, what brings you to Hagley? What brings me to Hagley is a project on the early high explosives industry, uh, specifically the role of California firms in creating that industry and then expanding to the East Coast and facilitating DuPont's entry into the high explosives sector and the chemical sector as well. What drew you to uh, research this particular topic? Well, um, I, came upon, I came upon this topic by accident doing archival research at the Bancroft Library at UC Berkeley on some early California manufacturers in the Bay Area and in metropolitan Oakland, and I kept seeing these references to Giant Powder, Giant Powder Company, and I, I understood it was explosives, but I didn't have any basis or understanding what that was. I'm not coming at this project as a historian of explosives or anything like that. I'm coming at it um, with a background as a economic and urban geographer. Um, but at any rate, I did a bit of research just simply trying to find out what is this giant powder company? Oh, Alfred Nobel's involved. Oh, this is high explosives. Well, I had to learn basic things. What's the difference between high explosives and black powder? oh, this company went back east early on. This sounds like a, an interesting and significant story. Why in the world is there no research on this? Um, and as, again, someone who studies California in the West, along with U.S. cities and other things, but here at Hagley, I very much am becoming increasingly aware of my sort of West Coast orientation to this stuff. Yeah, I thought it was uh, a significant and interesting story that represents a gap in the literature, a gap in the literature of high explosives, which is an important tranche of the chemical sector, important in terms of our understanding of DuPont itself, which is such, you know, remains as in many ways a paradigmatic U.S. corporation. Um, And then in terms of this broader story about East and West, I think the fact that this industry, this high explosives industry, expanded from west to east is an important element of the story. It's not the overall trend, it's not the overall pattern, but it's a phenomenon that happened with a number of California industries uh, early on. So what drew me to this project and certainly to the Hagley was just um, excitement about this story that hasn't been told Um, it's been alluded to, parts of it have been told, there's fragmentary evidence, but I think overall it's a novel story and it's, it's significant in a lot of ways. So that's what's 
drawn me here and maintained my interest. A lot of my work has been literally just trying to learn the story. So it's really a California story? or I think it definitely starts in California. Um, not to the exclusion of the East Coast, but uh, the origins and I think early development are centered in California, which is a different story. And I should also say what brings me to the Hagley specifically are the collections. DuPont eventually acquired these California firms and therefore has all their records. Um, so there's a concentration of business records and firm histories and letters, of course, and correspondence concerning these California firms, and they're all housed here. I'm coming at this from a California perspective, um, and I'm aware of that, and I need to be clear that there's a number of high explosives manufacturers in the East early on. They're not producing anywhere near the volume of the California firms. They are attacked for patent infringement early on, but it's, it's occurring in the East. But I, again, I have this self-conscious bias or orientation towards California because the story is not told. All of our understanding and all of the research, both popular and more scholarly on high explosives, um, really starts in Wilmington. The California firms at best are, are alluded to, right? Um, there's some work that talks a little bit more specifically, but I'm trying to tie dynamite into some broader arguments about the innovative industries that developed in California, about the need to incorporate more thoroughly California into a national narrative of economic expansion at this time, into some arguments about corporate formation saying, hey, if you look closely, there's some very distinctive types of or modes of corporate formation in California at this particular time. Uh, moment in history. Um, a lot of it is derived from resource extraction and mining securities as well. There's incredible wealth and capital accumulation in California. So I think this story can help add to a reassessment of our broader understanding of economic development at this time. I hope that's sort of a broad, broad uh, argument and something that I seek. Could you sort of outline how that happened? How uh, DuPont came to, would you say, dominate California eventually? Um, yeah, well, what happened in a nutshell is that in the late 1860s, one California firm in particular called the Giant Powder Company collaborated with Nobel, Alfred Nobel, and um, got rights to manufacture and sell dynamite in the West. And then eventually throughout the nation by, say, um, 1871 or so. As far as we have this early dynamite manufacturer in San Francisco, the first uh, dynamite produced in the U.S. was on the West Coast, literally in San Francisco, in the Mission District. Um, and there is this direct connection between mining financiers and early high explosives production. So you have the a lot of money being made, of course, a lot of reinvestment in specialized mining supplies, machinery, and of course, high explosives, and a number of firms that, that emerged pretty quickly um, in California. And say by the late 1870s, there are about six to eight 
prominent uh, high explosives manufacturers in California. Um, and again, there's this direct connection with the resource extraction industry. So at the same time, like I said, uh, giant powder company sort of pushed by Nobel comes to New Jersey early on um, around 1871. I think I mentioned 18, say between 1870 and 1871. Um, Nobel wants to shore up a national market. He wants to protect his patent. Um, and that's what they're doing. So these early high explosives, um, of course, it's a chemical uh, a chemical compound rather than black powder or gunpowder and the traditional stuff that um, DuPont and Hazard and Laughlin and Rand and the other sort of East Coast old guard manufacturers are making. Um, so at any rate, we have Giant on the East Coast and then another firm, the California Powder Company. No, I'm sorry, California Powder Works. So the California Powder Works comes to Cleveland in 1878, 1877, 1878. Sorry, I'm sort of a, a decades person, <laughs> um, being from geography rather than history. It is 1877. They come to Cleveland to enter into the Lake Superior mining regions, copper and iron. Um, and it in, both these California firms exert incredible pressure on DuPont in terms of competition, other East Coast powder makers. The thing is, DuPont had already acquired a large share of the California powder works through stock. They gained a controlling interest by this time. So the California powder works, they manufactured Hercules powder. Um, they were in cahoots with DuPont by this time. So as far as um, DuPont's entry, and its um, interaction and collaboration with California firms. DuPont, Lamont DuPont in particular, has a deep and ongoing uh, sort of mode of correspondence with California Powder Works, with Hercules Powder in Cleveland, with a guy named um, Joseph Willard in particular. And he learns the business to some extent at Hercules. Um, he learns about manufacturing the production process, um, the, the chemical components and things like that. Um, he hires several Hercules powder employees to help him create Rapano, the Rapano Chemical Company, which was DuPont's. Well, technically DuPont was one of uh, three investors along with Hazard and Laughlin and Rand, but that represents DuPont's direct entry into high explosives. So Lamont learns a lot of this business via information, via knowledge acquired um, from these California institutions and actors in the late 1870s. And then there is subsequently a lot of competition with these other California firms, Giant Powder Company in particular. And over the course of several years, they eventually negotiate and enter into a trade agreement, which divides up the East Coast in terms of sharing sales, because sharing profit was illegal, but pooling or sharing sales was legal. So at this point, um, DuPont sort of imposes, Lamont DuPont imposes DuPont's strategy of creating a syndicate or trust that's developed through the Gunpowder Trade Association. And then 
eventually, um, and this is where I'm, this is a topic I'm researching right now. So there are a number of trade agreements that increasingly create a national, um, not consolidation, but collaboration or trade agreements among all these firms operating in the US and it's broken up in terms of territory. But along the way, DuPont's acquiring stock in most of these other firms, right? And then DuPont creates a holding company in 1895 called the Atlantic Dynamite Company that helps consolidate ownership, not operation, but ownership of these firms. And then like we see across the high explosive sector after 1902, DuPont starts um, acquiring direct ownership and buying out these California firms and, and literally consolidating the whole industry, the bulk of the industry under the DuPont masthead. This was brand new technology. This was unfolding during the late, say, late 1860s, you know, and ongoing. But this moment, the first decade or two, they're really learning about manufacturing nitroglycerin, about making dynamite. Um, and there's incredible innovations unfolding. There's incredible differentiation of early high explosives, different components that are added to nitroglycerin. Um, so my understanding is through his own experimentations, through his fluency with Nobel's work as it was printed, and then through this collective learning and knowledge or technology transfer with the California firms. Uh, what have you been finding here at Hagley in the stacks? Well, I've been finding quite a bit in the stacks at this point. Um, it's really a, an amazing experience for me to have a an overabundance of resource ma uh, research materials. Most of my other work has been uh, just the opposite. Um, so what I found is, well, several sorts of things. One is um, information about these early California firms. Again, the company papers are here. They were acquired by DuPont. So the, the company papers, the early correspondence with Nobel and other European manufacturers. Oh, and it should be mentioned, these other early California firms, the bulk of them followed this model and acquired European technology, uh, acquired European patents um, to help them scale some technological barriers to entry and, and, and began uh, manufacturing in California, you know, using these patents as uh, their knowledge base. But I found information about these California firms, their formation, their the, the, the investors involved, and that's been important for me because I've wanted to create this link and I've been successful in creating this link to show, hey, that this high explosives industry was in effect a secondary, not a secondary, but a, a not secondary, not subsidiary, but sort of entrained in resource extraction more generally. So I've been able to link up, here's some of these a number of these major mines in California, and the owners of these mines are literally the owners of these high explosive firms, right? To show this connection between extraction and high explosives. So DuPont is a explosives manufacturer. Later they diversify obviously and invest in an incredible array of things, but initially they're primarily um, an explosives manufacturer. 
And that's somewhat different in California, right? And that's part of a broader argument looking at resource extraction as a viable base for, for more general economic development. Um, so getting back to your question, I found a lot of information about these early California firms. Um, I found a lot of correspondence, which is really enlightening in terms of how they learned, how they interacted with Nobel and with other folks with who had more knowledge and experience in terms of how does this process of technological innovation innovation work. Um, something I focus on a lot, like like other people, is this process of learning, collective learning, and how that occurs. Um, another realm of things has been interaction between the California firms and DuPont, starting largely with Lamont. Um, there's ongoing correspondence, and that involves both technology transfer, which is unidirectional, it flows in both ways, it also involves a lot of corporate strategy and plans and schemes and designs to create early high explosives manufacturers in the East. Um, so there's been a lot of, I've relied on a lot of uh, correspondence between DuPont interest and California actors. In terms of the technology involved, um, there's quite a bit of information on the patents themselves, the reissues and how those evolve over time, which has been very useful. Um, and then looking at subsequent development, getting more into the corporate strategy and the interform relations. At that point, it shifted, you know, later in time into the later 1880s, 1890s and turn of the century. Then at that point, I have been relying primarily on the DuPont company records in their various guises. So there's the main collections of the DuPont Corporation, but then an array of individual papers of certainly the legal information on consolidations, on acquisitions, and then um, increasingly court cases have provided a great source of information. The court cases around the uh, Sherman antitrust suit and some previous cases involving um, both DuPont and California firms suing for infringement as well. I have used a lot of advertisements and circulars in the Hagley stacks or in the Hagley library stacks and in, and at the moment picking through quite a few photographs as well. Um, Any good ones? There's some amazing photographs. Yeah, I'm very happy to say. Um, and again, it's the primary source for this stuff. So when DuPont acquired or sometimes visited these California firms, they documented it with photographs. So there are pictures, and some of them are a bit later than the main window that I'm looking at, the main time window or historical period. But at the same time, um, they're, they're wonderful photos that are very useful of these early California manufacturers from some from from 1890s and turn of the century century and primarily when DuPont gets fully acquires them in terms of formal ownership. So there's yeah, there's there's some things that I've certainly never seen before um, that are otherwise uh, non-existent for the photos. There's some great early advertisements as well. Um, and the early 
uh, trade books, the early advertisements, they include a lot of great information about the technology, about the use, about where these high explosives have been used and experimented upon. So I've picked through um, quite a bit and there's always more, um, but a lot of, you know, a lot of minutes books and, and, and formal records. I guess that would be one way to divide it. You have the formal documentation and records, the formal sort of office and business papers, and then a lot of the still official but less formal correspondence, and then the informal family correspondence as well. And there's a whole, you know, a very complex network of or web of, of interactions and correspondence among, you know, this array of DuPont family members, this several California firms and a number of actors. So um, there's a lot of different channels of information and I'm always sort of finding a new vein. To return to the photos briefly, like mm. what, what exactly are they taking images of? Like the factories is sort of like, hey, this is what we own now or? But my understanding, and I talked to an archivist at the Soda House who had been helping organize these pictures is that, yeah, they're documenting the factories. Um, at this point, they are consolidating production. You know, they have formal inventories of the worth and value of the manufacturers themselves or the, the manufacturing facilities themselves, the stocks on hands and things like that. But after 1902, 1903, they're concentrating production and, and dissolving a lot of corporations and boarding up a lot of factories. So I think at this point, they're, they're taking inventory and um, they're documenting as you say, everything from the interiors of different, you know, it's not one factory. There's a number of, it's a production complex. There's a number of different, you know, the steps or processes of production are concentrated on a large factory site for a lot of these companies. So they're, 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 they're documenting the different buildings, the nitroglycerin house, right? The, the, um, say the acids rendering facilities, the packing house, et cetera, et cetera. So there's everything from the interior of these different production facilities to the site itself, to some really wonderful, um, you know, broader scale landscape shops. And in the East Bay in particular, it's great because one, one thing I'm looking at is the concentration of multiple high explosive manufacturers, the clustering of these manufacturers in the East Bay, right in the Oakland metropolitan area. And you can literally see multiple factories from, you know, an, in an individual picture. Or it says, this picture is from the, say, Judson Dynamite and Powder Company, and it's of the Vigorate Powder Company. So it helps create a visual sense of the proximity of a lot of these manufacturers. Have you found anything that's sort of like, that you find really interesting, but maybe not necessarily useful? A lot. Um, and it's a process of figuring out what's, what's useful or not. But um, there's two things that jump to mind. And it's more like you say, it's really interesting. It's fun. And it plays, you know, it's, it's a part of what I'm doing, although, as you say, the particularities might not find their way into the finished work, but one is just the sheer novelty and experimental nature of this early dynamite production. 
For example, so Nobel sends this chemist to San Francisco to create the first dynamite in, in the U.S., in San Francisco's Mission District. It's almost comical, his, his resistance and his, his protection of Nobel's uh, trade secrets. So you have a lot of commentary on the fact that this guy, Winkler, who comes from Germany, won't let anyone into his little workshop, right? And, and the, some of these California financiers who are quite prominent are, are really quite offended by this. And then in terms of the experimentation, around the same time, you have things like Nobel's chemist offering another guy money to actually detonate the dynamite because they've never done it before, right? He has some understanding. Nobel's chemist has some understanding of how to produce it, but he's never detonated it. So he offers a guy 50 bucks to detonate this first dynamite just because, again, um, the experimental nature of production. And the guy takes him up on it, but he doesn't fix the detonator correctly and it, you know, it fails and things like that. There are an incredible succession of explosions and it's not comical. Lives are lost. Disproportionately, Chinese lives are lost because that's a primary labor force for a lot of this activity in California. The, the frequency is somewhat, is, is quite interesting just because again, it's experimental technology. It's learning by doing. It's problem solving and the stakes are incredibly high, right? Because an accident can cause these massive explosions. So um, the succession and the sheer volume of explosions I find interesting. And it's it can create a, a bookend of sorts speaking to the innovative and experimental nature of production. The other thing that I found particularly interesting is Lamotte DuPont's and other DuPont's interaction with these California uh, financiers and capitalists. Um, there's a different style of doing business, it seems. Some of these California individuals are much more gruff, much more sort of pragmatic. Um, they're a lot less graceful in their negotiating tactics. And it's just interesting to see this interaction. It's interesting to see um, Lamont write to Henry DuPont who's the head of DuPont at this time, telling him to be careful in his negotiations with some of these actors, Egbert Judson in particular, saying, don't buck against this guy. Saying, to be frank, I'm scared of him. And that's not something I have seen on the side of DuPont. They're generally, you know, welding, wielding incredible power, incredible leverage, and incredible smarts and innovations, you know, not only in explosives production, but also in corporate organization and finance and things like that. So seeing some of the less formal family correspondence has been very fun as well. And there's certainly some great quotes to, to pick and choose from to help frame some of these broader points about the interaction between California firms and, and DuPont itself. Yeah, in terms of DuPont, some of what I've been discussing certainly isn't the overall characterization, but it's an element. It's an element because they're entering into a market, into a, not a market, into an industry and a sector that not a lot of people have a great working knowledge of. There's an incredible, an incredibly steep learning curve and a lot of work that has to be done. There's the issue of patents, which um, 
you know, obviously represent legal rights, and they also embody a lot of pragmatic innovations in working knowledge. So I think despite their deep pockets, there's also a lot of um, asymmetry in terms of how DuPont can most effectively and fluidly enter the business. So there's this moment in the late 1870s and early 1880s where um, where it's a, a, a an easy transition and at times a rough entry, but it must be noted that through acquiring both stocks and technology, DuPont rapidly uh, consolidates quite a bit, quite a large share of this industry. And California firms are still involved, but they deploy a lot of the corporate strategy that was learned and increasingly developed in the black powder industry, and it's very effective in the high explosives industry as well. Although it must be noted that these California firms remain very central to corporate strategy. They play an active role. They are investing along with DuPont in acquiring other upstart firms in the East. They are facilitating trade arrangements in the West, so they're still certainly in the mix. To learn more about Hagley's grants and fellowships and search our collections, visit hagley.org research. That's H-E-G-L-E-Y dot org. To listen to more stories from the stacks, you can find us at hagley.org stories from the stacks, all one word, or simply subscribe to our feed on iTunes or SoundCloud. Be sure to stay tuned for our new podcast, The Mill Race, 